Well, as I said a minute ago, uh, I have opened up the pulpit this morning to one doctor, Anthony Silvestro. I've had the pleasure of, uh, of having his friendship for the last three years or so. I met him through um, Andrew Rappaport with Striving for Eternity, and uh, you are a board member for Striving of Eternity, um, and uh, you also have another ministry. Okay, he's uh, also associated with Mike Riddle with uh, Globe with Creation Training Initiative. Creation Training Initiative. Uh, Anthony, along with uh, Andrew and others, um, I think even with with this fellow George, uh, has uh, gone out and done uh, evangelism on the streets, and he has been in the thick of it. And he's uh, he's an inspiration to me and a good friend. So, without further ado. Uh, Now you're going to force me, Pastor, to uh, to tell the same joke as I said earlier for the Sunday school. Is that uh, I'm Dr. Anthony Silvestro. Uh, I'm a dentist, so I'm not a real doctor. <laughs> That's what I always hear. <laughs> um, yeah, Pastor Aaron and I, we we actually we found out we met I think a year earlier than what we actually thought we meant or met because there was a picture floating around on Facebook where there's and I distinctly remember this day, my first time at Shepherd's Conference. It was at a table outside with Jordan Hall and Phil Johnson and Andrew Rappaport, and there was this really quiet guy who didn't say a word at the table who was sitting next to me. And it turned out to be Pastor Aaron. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so we, we, you know, saw each other at least, maybe said a few words uh, much earlier than we, we had thought. So this morning, we're going to talk about the book of Romans, um, specifically Romans 5, and uh, specifically verses 12 to about 19. We're going to take a little bit more of a bird's eye view on this. So uh, before we read, I'd like us to start in prayer. Lord, I just uh, I thank you for your word, Lord. As uh, For those of us who stand in here in, in your grace, Lord, and that, uh, and that you've saved us, Lord, and that you've sealed us by your Holy Spirit, Lord, uh, Lord, just thank you for opening our eyes for changing our heart, Lord, to who you are, and, uh, and, and, and being, being granted repentance that leads to knowledge of the truth of who you are, Lord, and that uh, we can be able to be assured of our salvation, Lord, knowing where we're going, Lord. Lord, we just thank you for your death, burn, resurrection on the cross, Lord, that paid the penalty of our sins that we owe. Lord, and, uh, today, Lord, I just uh, I ask that you, it's your words and not mine that come out of my mouth. Lord, I ask that... Uh, that these words that are being spoken, that penetrate the hearts, minds, ears, and souls of everybody in here, Lord, today. And that uh, we come away, I pray that we come away with a better understanding of who you are uh, by your word, Lord. In your holy and precious name we pray, amen. So, you know, about five years ago, about five years ago now, I heard about a conference that was in Philadelphia, about a six-hour drive, one-hour flight from my house. And I'm like, look at these apologists that are going to be here, Jeff Durbin and Saito Brugenkate. like, these are guys I need to meet. So book my flight, buy my ticket, and I go to the conference. And I show up, and it's, it's a street preaching conference. <laughs> What's going on here? 
I sat through it. And I was doing some evangelism. I'd go hand out tracts and, and whatnot. That was about the extent of it. Sat through this street preaching conference. And as I sat through it, I'm like, you know, I'm glad there's guys that go on and do these things. I'm glad they go on and they preach. And they have a, have a wonderful time preaching God's word and, and people being able to listen to them. It's just, it's just not for me. But I remembered, I remember Jeff Durbin saying a couple of things that day. And I remember him saying that, uh, you know, you can, you can preach. If you've got nothing to preach on, stand up there and read Romans. He goes, start at the beginning of Romans. And then read Romans 1, Romans 2. He goes all the way to Romans 6. And then when you get done with Romans 6, go back to Romans 1 and start reading again out loud. I'm like, interesting. Well, what Jeff was saying is that, you know, the gospel is is it comes to life in romans it is amazing and uh, and that's kind of where we're going to be parking today now for those of you who are wondering i walked out of there not saying i was not going to street preach it wasn't for me and then uh today i street preach <laughs> what happens <laughs> well uh, they somebody else also said that day that if you don't want to read romans and you don't have a lot of time read john 3 and so it was only a couple months later, my wife and I were going down to a marriage conference um, in Florida, a marriage cruise, I should say, so we were doing it in style, and uh, family life, decent ministry, but, you know, one of my favorite preachers was there, which is Vody Bauckham, and so I'm like, we are going on the cruise for this. Our son comes with us, can't go on the cruise, so grandma flies down a few days later. We took a couple family days before we go on the cruise. Grandma flies down. We go pick her up at the airport. We drive back. As we're driving back to the hotel we were at, she's like, you know, I really want a Starbucks. Said, okay. Looked one up on the phone. Well, you know, there's one here at this outdoor mall. We go stop at the outdoor mall, and, and uh, we pull in. And the mall was closed, but it was open for a, a street art fair. And so we walk into the street art fair, and there were people everywhere. But it wasn't just people, like old people, <laughs> like like 80s and 90s old people walking around. And every car in this, and this is Boca Raton, by the way. So every car in this parking garage is like a $100,000 car. Like this is Jay Leno's garage. Live. <laughs> it was unbelievable. And of course, at that point, I got this huge, huge conviction. You need to tell people about Jesus. You need to preach it. To which I did what you're never supposed to do, which is tell God that, uh, well, you know, if you just give me a sign that uh, says I should preach, then I'll preach. I don't ever do that. It's not good. And <laughs> and uh, we're walking around with our coffees, and my wife's like, you know, let's go walk around this art fair for a little bit. I'm like, oh boy, I'm like, okay, God, if you just if you get into if you get into her into any conversation about God about you, um, I guess I'll just know what I have to do. And so she. <laughs> No more than, I don't know, 12 or 14 booths, she stops and sees these beautiful pictures. And she goes, hey, uh, what are these pictures of? Oh, they're from Israel. Oh, boy. So I turn around, and I kid you not, in the street, there's this folding chair that nobody's around. Just sitting there. I hand her my coffee, open up my phone to John 3, and I go start preaching. Thankfully, before they kicked me off the chair, I got through John 3. But I, but I bring this up because that has kind of turned into me going out and doing a lot of street preaching, and I do a lot through the book of Romans. Why? Because there's so much in it. And so there are times I stand up there and I read through Romans. You know, we go through Romans 1, as we talked about in Sunday school. Romans 1 is, it does a wonderful job of, with a lot of points, but it says the gospel is the power of God and salvation. 
that that everybody knows God exists by his creation, the things that have been made, that they're without excuse, that when they don't acknowledge the one true God, they turn to idols. We read in Romans 2 that the moral laws are in everyone's heart. We read in Romans 3 that, uh, that nobody is good, no, not one. Everybody is a sinner. Everybody has fallen short. Paul's some pretty strong language that comes out of Psalms in, in Romans 3. Again, in Romans 4, for the people who ask you questions about, well, what, what about the people that lived before Jesus died on the cross? Oh, you know what? I got an answer for you. Let's read Romans 4 together. Abraham was justified by faith in the coming Messiah. And we get to Romans 5, where we're going to, to park at here, which is we see this transition in Romans. We're all born in the family of Adam, the sin nature. And for those who are saved, get transferred into the family of God, become co-heirs with Christ. And so on that, we're going to read through the entire chapter of Romans 5, and then we're going to focus on, like I said, a passage out of there. So Romans 5, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this, into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam who is a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many die through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, Death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, 
grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So in verses 1 through 11, we see how we are reconciled to God. As when we are in the family of Adam, we are not in this neutral zone. We're not in this family-friendly zone. We are not in this kind of figuring it out zone. We're not in this as we often talk to people that, you know, I'm just kind of, I don't know what to believe yet, so I'm just kind of, I'm on this journey. No. The Bible says that you are an enemy of God. You are at enmity with him if you are still in Adam. And so through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, we can be reconciled to him. We're no longer enemies of God, but that we have peace through Jesus Christ our Lord. So two very different families that we see on this earth today. And so we see this unfolding in, in Romans 5. Now, I, I have to give a, a little disclaimer here. I, I have this running joke, long-standing joke. I'm serious about it, though, with, with Andrew. He says, you bring everything back to Genesis. And I said, amen. <laughs> because as we read through the Bible, if you don't take Genesis for what it says, Genesis 1 through 11, you better cut out a lot of parts of your Bible. It doesn't make sense. You cannot reconcile the rest of the Bible if you don't have a right understanding of Genesis, the beginning of Genesis. So we're going to walk through this today. I also will say that give me any doctrine of the Bible. Give me any doctrine, and I will show you how it is rooted firmly in Genesis 1 through 11. On most of the time, it's in Genesis 1 through 3. So we're going to walk through some of these things as we take some of a bird's eye view, but also um, some depth into, into this passage here. So in our passage, Romans 5, 12 through 19, the theme that we're going to proceed with this morning is the juxtaposition of the first man, Adam, and the last Adam, Jesus Christ. We see how there is this comparison through Scripture, especially here in Romans and then again in 1 Corinthians 15. So with verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, a correct understanding here of the beginning of Genesis must be had. See, about 6,000 years ago, notice I didn't say billions, but about 6,000 years ago, God created everything in six literal 24-hour days. By the power of his word, God created everything. He created the light, the earth, the atmosphere. God made the dry land appear and created vegetation. God created the sun, moon, and stars and all the animals of the air and the sea in the first five days of the creation week. On day six, he created all the livestock, creeping things, beasts of the earth. Lastly, the pinnacle of his creation the crowning glory of his creation. He created man. He created man in his image. It's not, this is not something we share with the animals, by the way. I know we're kind of in a, in a zone here in the Pacific Northwest where, um, like a lot of parts of the country, animals are given more rights than humans. 
right? We protect baby dogs and we don't protect baby humans in the womb, right? We got it backwards, folks. <laughs> We're made in his image, not animals. But after creating humans, again, the pinnacle of his creation, this is his last part of creation week, he then called his creation very good. We see multiple times in the beginning of Genesis, he calls his creation good. But then in Genesis 131, it was very good. The right rendering in the Hebrew of this is perfect. His creation was perfect at this point. In this perfect creation, it should be obvious something is missing. Right? Because he gives, he gives all the green plants for food, not only to the humans, but also to the animals. There is no humans eating animals. There's no animals eating animals. Ten ten times in Genesis 1 alone, we see that God continually created plants and animals to reproduce after their own kinds. He didn't use millions of years of death to produce, produce everything we see today. Would death be part of God's perfect creation? No. I mean, in fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, God says that the last enemy to be destroyed is what? Is death. Would God have used his last enemy to take death, 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 death? I could do this for billions of years, by the way. Death, death. Did he really do death in this entire timeline until he got to animals and human beings in a perfect creation? No. No, he didn't. In this perfect creation, God formed Adam from the dust of the ground. He didn't, he didn't form us from monkey-like creatures. We don't see anywhere in the Bible where he takes one created kind and turns it into another created kind. He created everything after its own kind or to reproduce after its own kind. And as I said earlier, God gave the vegetation to everybody all humans and all animals to be able to eat. There's no killing, no eating of animals in this perfect creation. So death is nowhere to be found in this original creation. Where does death actually come from? How did it enter into creation? Well, we can read this. Back in Genesis 2. They said everything goes back to Genesis, right? Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. Before Eve was formed, this was the command given to Adam. And he said this, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We see the promise of death as the punishment for disobedience right here in Genesis 2. We see that they're so pure that we get to the last verse of Genesis 2. So God created Adam, gives him the commands. Adam names all the animals, creates Eve. And then the last verse of Genesis 2 says, and they were naked and not ashamed. And so like, you read Genesis 2 for the first time. You're like, whoa, what's this doing in here, right? Why is this verse here? Well, we find out pretty quickly as we get into Genesis 3. 
So we open up Genesis 3, and we see what? We see the serpent tempting Eve. Now, we don't know if Adam was standing there next to her the entire time, or if he moseyed onto the scene right as she's eaten from the fruit. I happen to believe that Adam was there the entire time, based on, on clues in Scripture, although I can't be dogmatic about it. But either way, we see, we see this tempting of Eve. And after some verbal exchange, we see in verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And so what's the first thing that happens now? What is the first thing? Mind you, it wasn't after Eve ate of the fruit. It was after Adam did. What's the first thing that happens in Genesis 3? Their eyes were opened and they were ashamed. Now, all of a sudden, we understand the context of that last verse in Genesis 2. Immediate spiritual death. They recognize now, they have a knowledge of good and evil. So the reason why we wear clothes today, and thank God we all do, <laughs> goes back to Adam and Eve. Right? They didn't need to do it before then, before sin. So then the eyes of both were open. They knew they were naked, Genesis 3, 7. From Genesis 3.14 to Genesis 3.19, we see God cursing creation. You know, now, Adam and Eve didn't just stand idly by, right? Adam and Eve, after their eyes were open, realized they were naked. They fashioned themselves fig leaves to cover themselves, cover their shame. And then they went and hid. Attempted to hide, right? I mean, God knows all. God's everywhere. They attempted to hide, but they, they hid. And uh, no different than any one of us did as unbelievers, right? We sin and we pretend God doesn't exist. It's exactly what we read in Romans 1 for those who were here today in Sunday school. But God goes and curses creation. You know, he quote-unquote finds Adam and Eve, and he curses creation. All the things are going to happen now in creation. He talks, a lot of them he talks about here. But Genesis 3.19 concludes his cursing of creation by God saying this, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So now, not only are they spiritually dead, we see the entrance of future physical death. That they are promised they are now going to die. This is not part of God's original creation, but the promise of future physical death. Adam's going to be returned back to the dust that he was made from, that he came from. Now, for those of you who've read books like The Holiness of God, R.C. Sproul does a wonderful job explaining this. So does John Calvin, by the way, in his commentary. It says, God deferred the punishment. For then was Adam consigned to death, and death began its reign in him until supervening grace should bring a remedy. It's important to understand that death was not the natural destiny of the first Adam. It was the punishment for his disobedience against his creator. Both the immediate spiritual death and the future physical death. So this death was brought into the world as a result of Adam's sin, spread to all men because all have sinned, and the wages of sin is death. Now, why have all people since Adam and Eve sinned? This is a big question. 
See, all of Adam's descendants, all who are in his loins, are born with a sin nature, an inherent predisposition to sin. We have a natural tendency, a natural inclination to want to sin and not to do good. And that's because of the sinfulness of man. It is because of the sinful nature that we are actually born with. As Vodibachum often jokes around, he calls kids vipers and diapers. Right? Kids don't have to learn to be evil. Kids don't have to be learned to be bad. I see parents looking at their kids right now. <laughs> right? They don't have to learn this. I mean, they can learn it, but they're inherently inclined to sin. In Hebrews 7, verses 9 to 10, as a result of Abraham paying tithes to Melchizedek, it is said that one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. That's very similar to every one of us who is literally in Adam's loins at the moment he ate of that fruit. It is as if we had eaten of that fruit ourselves and disobeyed God. So now we're born with this sinful flesh. We see it both scripturally, we even see it scientifically. Our genome is not getting any better. Our genome's degrading. Every future generation has 50 to 100 more permanent mutations in it. To the point that the same scientists who foolishly believe in evolution, that, that things are getting better and new information is being created and added every day, the science shows the exact opposite. The science shows that our genes are degrading, that at some point in the future, they call this genetic entropy, at some point in the future, humans aren't even, aren't even going to be able to reproduce anymore. Exactly what we'd expect to find as we read here in Scripture. And so because of our inherited sin nature, everybody sins. And David acknowledges this inherited sin nature in Psalm 51, as well as his personal responsibility to God for his own sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Born with a sin nature. In verse 13 of our passage, Paul acknowledged that although the Mosaic law, starting with the Ten Commandments, had not been given to the early descendants of Adam, sin was still in the world. So while they're not charged by breaking specific laws, because again, the Ten Commandments have not been up yet, they were still accountable to their sin. And while Cain did not have the Decalogue when he murdered his brother Abel, he was still punished by God for that. In fact, verse 14 tells us that death reigns from Adam to Moses, even though the law had not been given yet. So when we read through the genealogies of Genesis 5, how many of you want to just fall asleep, right? So-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. Right? A lot of us do. And there's some things we can't, we can't miss in here. The first one is that it's a wonderful geological timeline. When we understand properly that Adam and Eve were made on day six of creation, 24-hour literal day, and that we have an unbroken genealogical chain from Adam all the way down to, to Abraham in here, that we can just add up the years of the genealogies and get an idea as to how old the earth was 
at the time of, in this passage, Lamech and later on in Abraham. Lamech being Noah's father. When Adam sinned directly by disobeying a command of God, there's something else that we should see in this passage, that his descendants up until Moses, who did not directly break a law, they still suffered the wages of, of sin being death. And so when we read through these genealogies and can add up all these years, we can't miss the fact that it says, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, right? All the way through these genealogies. This death was not meant to be there, and yet it is completely present as we read through. And it's at here at the end of verse 14 that we see that Adam is a type of Christ, It is here where I want to part for the remainder of our time. And it's critical in our ability to understand and comprehend our salvation in in Jesus Christ. So how is Adam a type of the one who was to come? We find that through scripture there are so many similarities between Adam and Christ. And we're going to examine several of them. Obviously in these similarities we also see the failures of Adam. Which were not failures in Jesus Christ. So number one, we can look at the image of God. Adam was made in the image of God. What is this image that we're talking about here? As John MacArthur states in his book, Battle for the Beginning, the Hebrew word for image, selim, comes from a root that speaks of carving. It is the same word used to speak of graven images in Exodus 20. It almost seems to convey the idea that a man was carved into the shape of God. It suggests that God was, in essence, the pattern for the personhood of man. That is not true of anything else in the space-time universe. Clearly, because the image of God is unique to humanity, it must describe some aspect of human nature that is not shared by animals. Therefore, this cannot speak primarily of man's appearance or biological makeup. If the image of God were a reference to the way we are constructed corporally, if if this is meant to suggest that we bear a physical resemblance to the maker, then it would probably also be accurate to suggest that even chimpanzees have some likeness of God. Make no mistake here, a chimpanzee, an ape, and every other animal is not carved into the shape of God. And we understand this from Scripture in Genesis 2. So as Adam was given the charge to name all the animals, so God gives the one command to Adam to not eat from the fruit of the tree, knowledge good and evil, he then allows Adam to name all the animals. Now we can read through this passage and say, well, you know, It's just him reading through the animal, or just naming the animals. I mean, God just gave him a task to do. But there's something vitally important in here as well, in understanding the image of God, is that no doubt about it, apes, monkeys, chimpanzees crossed the path of Adam as he named them. And what do we read in Scripture is that there was not a suitable helper for him. God allowed Adam to recognize this fact to which he recognizes there's not a suitable helper among all these animals that come by. And then Adam was put into a deep sleep, a rib taken, and and Eve was now fashioned. This at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. So MacArthur goes on to say in his book that clearly Adam being made in his image deals primarily with man's spiritual attributes, our self-consciousness, our moral consciousness, and out-of-consciousness of others especially our consciousness of God himself. 
Before the image of God in man was marred by sin, Adam shared in a pure and undefiled way all the communicable attributes of God, those qualities of the divine nature that are capable of being reflected in creatures. These would include holiness, wisdom, goodness, truth, love, grace, mercy, long-suffering, and righteousness. It also must therefore include our rational faculties, ability to understand abstract principles and higher aspects of our intellect and emotions. So we share what are called the communicable attributes with God. Like things like holiness and love and justice. Now, we don't do this perfectly, mind you, right? We don't have a perfect sense of love or perfect ability to love, a perfect ability to carry out justice where God does. But yet we still share in those attributes with him. Then there's others like being all-knowing, his omniscience, that we don't share with him whatsoever. Or his omnipotence, being all-powerful, we don't share with him whatsoever. But this is what we're talking about in Adam, in human beings being made in the image of God. Well, we can go to Colossians 1.15, and, and we see here that Christ is the image of the invisible God. Now, understand Christ is fully God, that he added a fully human nature to his divine nature at the incarnation. And as we read from uh, Henry Morris in the Genesis record, Hebrews 10.5 says that a human body was prepared for the Son and that he was born in the likeness of men, just as man had been made in the likeness of God. So what we, our first point here is while Adam is made in the image of God, we see that Christ took on flesh, who is now the image of the living God. There's a connection here. We go on to number two. Adam and Eve were the only human beings not born in sin. They weren't born in a sin nature. No different than Jesus Christ who came to earth, who not only was born without a sin nature, but also was able to accomplish through his obedience, never sinning his entire walk here on earth. Hebrews 4.16, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every aspect has been tempted as we are, here's the difference, yet without sin. And so we see another connection here. Adam and Eve being born without sin, they fall pretty quickly. Jesus, also born without sin, remains without sin his entire life. Now, incidentally, one thing that I take this position on, I know MacArthur does and, and several other good theologians, notice I said good, I'm influencing you here, is that why was Jesus able to be born without sin? He entered into a broken creation. He took on human flesh. We've already said that every human is born in sin. How did that happen? So w- when I look through Romans 5 and, and what we talked earlier about being in the loins of Adam, was Adam the actual father of Jesus Christ? No, he didn't inherit his sin nature. Obviously, there's an act of the Holy Spirit here, but he, didn't, he did not inherit his sin nature. So it is, it is because of Adam and his sin... It is because of Adam and us all being born of sinful flesh that we continue to sin and we die because of that sin. 
we can look at Adam as a federal head. And so you'll hear about federal headship. And uh, I want to talk about this here for a moment. For those, of you, for those of us who are in here old enough, do you remember Bill Clinton and his presidency? And his, his um, improper deeds with Monica Lewinsky. And then he goes off to China for this major summit. And while Bill was there, was he asked questions about what he was there for? No. He was asked questions about his moral failures. Why? Because he was the representative of the United States. He was the federal head of the United States. Think about the last time you went to a restaurant and you got bad service. And the food just, the food was, was good, the service was horrible. When you walk out of that restaurant, what do you say? Do you say that the server did a bad job, or do you say, boy, Red Robin just really failed me today? Right? <laughs> Federal headship. In my dental practice, when one of my employees did something wrong, who got blamed? This guy. This is the understanding of federal headship. And this is what we have to understand uh, scripturally who Adam is. He's our federal head. Not Christ's federal head. We can look at the temptation by Satan. So the first thing we read about the life together of Adam and Eve is that they're being tempted in the garden. And as they're tempted, did they succeed or did they fail? They failed. They failed miserably. They failed pretty quickly in that temptation. Satan used the very word of God, the command that God gave Adam, and twisted it. Very similar to every false teacher today, right? Twisted the word slightly, reflected it back. Eve got it wrong back, and then the challenge was on at that point. Well, what happened in the desert? When Christ got challenged, Christ was also tempted by Satan. Satan also used the word of God to reflect to Christ, to which Christ responded appropriately back to him. Christ succeeded. Think about this parallel. Adam and Eve were looking at this luscious garden of all kinds of unbelievable fruits and seeds. I'm certain that every fruit was better than anything we have today. They could have had their pick of the litter, but yet they chose to eat the one fruit that was forbidden. Christ in his temptation, or being tempted, was starving. <laughs> if there is anybody who wanted food, who had a need for food, it was Christ. And yet, Christ succeeded, where Adam failed. We find in Scripture that Jesus' ministry actually starts after the temptation in the desert. Literally a linchpin in his life right there. We can also look at dominion. God told Adam and Eve to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth in Genesis 1.26. 
So this having dominion means that, that God entrusted us with his creation to use it as we see fit. doesn't mean abuse it, but use it. If we want to eat an animal, well, that happened later. But now today, if we want to eat an animal, we can eat an animal. We're to till the ground. We're, we're to use the creation for our benefit without abusing it. This is where we see the dominion. Part of this responsibility was obviously to tend the garden, which now has thorns and thistles, and it did not have the thorns and thistles in the beginning. What do we read about Christ? So while Adam was given dominion over the creation, Christ is Lord of everything. He owns all. Another great parallel here. We see this in Psalm 8, by the way. So a Psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man, Adam, that you are mindful of him and the son of man, Christ, that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all the things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and all the, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of, your, of the seas. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So we can, we can continue to go through the Bible, which we're not going to do here, and see all these similarities between Adam and Christ. First Adam and last Adam. But this is where we really need to get rooted in our understanding of this and get a deeper understanding. Verse 15 says this, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Adam's one act of condemnation plunged the entire creation into brokenness. And then we read in Romans 8, starting in verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, Adam in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. But Adam's act was the exact opposite of what Christ's redemptive work on the cross, which was to conquer sin and death. That by grace through faith and not by works, lest anyone should boast, sinful human beings could be saved by Christ's sacrifice on the cross. So here we see this transfer of all the things that Adam did and failed miserably. But we see this unbelievable connection to Christ who succeeded in every way. Here's one of the areas, obedience and sin. So first, Adam displayed disobeyed God in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve failed in the garden when tempted by the serpent. As we said earlier, Christ was successful in the desert being tempted. Because of this, Jesus was the perfect human sacrifice with his death on the cross. Make no mistake about it. When we speak to the cults out there, the Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, and others... If we just understood the deity of Christ properly, the hypostatic union properly, we could, we could talk to every one of them. 
the reason why we can have salvation in Christ is because of his fully human nature, that it was human bloodshed, perfect human, never sinning, perfect human bloodshed on the cross, but that he was also fully God so that he could pay the eternal fine on that cross. That's the beauty of understanding God's two natures and what happened on the cross. Can you imagine the full wrath of God on a human being for eternity? And that Jesus took the full wrath of God on that cross. That's a sobering thought to understand that properly. What about death? As we read in Genesis 3, Adam was responsible as our federal head for the spiritual death and the physical death that we see plaguing this entire creation. And yet, 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy to be destroyed in death. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Hebrews 10, 12 tells us that when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus suffered the punishment on the cross. His death on the cross. The same thing promised all the way back in Genesis 2. And then guess what? Raised himself from the dead. That the sacrifice on that cross was sufficient that Jesus paid that penalty in full. He righted the wrongs. He fixed the creation. He conquered death and conquered sin on that cross. We see a covering. Adam and Eve, when they were ashamed of their nakedness, they covered themselves with loincloths, fig leaves, This is no different than any one of us before we are saved. This is no different than every false religion out there tries to cover themselves with works. And yet, what did God, what did God do in the garden? Did he deem their fig leaves good enough? No. We see the first animal sacrifice that God covered them himself with animal skins. Which would set off thousands of years of animal bloodshed in Israel to be able to point to the final sacrifice, Jesus Christ. The spotless lamb that was to come, Jesus Christ. We read further in, Gen- in Romans 5.16, And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many 
will be made righteous. Because of Adam's sin, we're all born with a sin nature. Because of this sin nature, we're all sinners. We've all broken God's law. Romans 3, Paul states, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. I want us to examine ourselves right now. This is as Pastor and told me the, the so what. So what? So what about all this? We see some wonderful connections between Adam and Christ. What does this mean? Well, again, in the case of Adam and federal headship, he's the representative for every one of us. Because of him, we are born with a sin nature. We are all born in the family of Adam. Yet we can also read in 1 Corinthians 15, it says this about Christ's identity as the last Adam. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthly. The second man is from heaven. So friends, while we're here this morning, while Adam is the federal head of all mankind, sinful mankind, the second man, Adam, the last Adam, Jesus is the federal head of all believers. Every one of us is under one or the other in federal headship. Adam and Eve were told in the beginning to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth in Genesis 1.28, and that Eve was the mother of all the living. Every single person on this planet goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. We all have our lineage that traces back. But we're not all actually related in a different sense. So while we all might be extended cousins of one another because of our lineage going back to Adam and Eve, we're all made in the image of God. But contrary to popular belief out there, we are not all children of God. This is a very famous thing that a lot of the false religions will say. This is a huge saying from the Catholics especially. Well, aren't we just all children of God? No. No. No, because see, Christ represents a different type of family. When one gets saved, when one gets justified by the blood of Christ, when one becomes born again, he is literally taken from the, from the family of Adam and he is adopted into sonship, into the family of God to become co-heirs with Christ. To now which we cry out, Abba, Father. According to John 1.12, but all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And Romans 8.17 takes it a step further, saying that we are now fellow heirs, co-heirs with Christ. 
In being the last Adam, Jesus did what Adam failed to do. Fulfill the required obedience in the garden and the required sinless life of perfection. But yet, God came down to reconcile us back to himself. Christ became sin on the cross. Christ is the perfect mediator. He is the only mediator. It's not Mary. It's not anybody else. Christ, being fully God and fully man, was the perfect, is the perfect mediator between God and man. So here's the question in the so what. The question I'm going to leave you with. Are you still an Adam? Is he, Adam, still your federal head? And if so, you will receive the punishment that you rightfully deserve. If you are still an Adam, you will still be punished for your sins for all of eternity. And God is right to do that because every one of our sins is against him, the righteous judge. Or, or, are you in Christ, the last Adam, who is the federal head of redeemed humanity? Have you been adopted into the sonship of God? I implore you today, if you are an Adam, cry out to God that he have mercy on your soul and that he grants you repentance and faith in who he is. None of us know when our last breath is going to be. And it could be when we walk outside, we get struck by a car, and all of a sudden we face our maker immediately. If you are redeemed, if you are in Christ, I pray that God gives you a love for people. Because if you're in Christ and you walk past 99% of people out there, guess what? They're still an Adam. And no matter how many times you tell me, you can tell me till you're blue in the face that you love people and that you love God. If you don't tell the souls that are on their way to hell that they're on the wrong path, you don't actually love people You are an accomplice to their death. Lord, I just uh, I thank you for this day, Lord. And uh, boy, there's just so much in your word to be able to pull out. And uh, it feels like we, we hardly covered anything, Lord, today in, in these verses. Lord, I just pray that uh, for anybody in here who is still in Adam... Lord, that, uh, that you work mightily, Lord, that you take out that heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh that only you can do, Lord. Lord, I ask that uh, you do that mighty work, Lord, and convict those who are still in Adam of their sin, Lord, and that you adopt them into your family, Lord. Lord, I pray for everybody in here who is saved, who is born again, Lord, who, who knows you, 
on a personal level, Lord, that, that you give them the love and the fire to go out and to preach the good news of who you are, to tell people the truth about who you are, to pe- tell people the truth about who they are, that they're lost, that they're in Adam, that they're in sin, that they deserve punishment of their sin, Lord, and, that's, uh, and that they can have, through the free gift of your grace, they can have forgiveness and be reconciled back to you. Lord, I ask that you give us strength because every one of us in here has family members who I know are so hard to talk to. I know my family and my wife's family plagued with, with, with Roman Catholicism and that we are constantly witnessing. Lord, I just ask that you change some of their hearts, Lord. Lord, I ask the same thing for everybody in here, that you give them the boldness to talk to their family members, Lord. Because evangelism is not about going out and just doing events. As you go, in Matthew 28, make disciples. That we are to be continually evangelizing, Lord. And I just pray that you you give every one of us in here a, a continuing love and a growing love for the lost which is just a reflection of our love for you. That we go out and share the truth about who you are, because there is only one truth. As you said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.